Today is April 8th. It is 2015. Our message today is called Gloves. Uh, I listened to Pastor Sutherland preach a fantastic resurrection message, cleverly titled, He is Risen. I didn't see that one coming. And uh, one of the things that I loved about the word that he shared is he basically said, here is the miraculous gospel story. Now, what are you going to do with it? I believe in a personal responsibility. I believe in a mandate that God gives uh, each household and that you have a responsibility to that story. In other words, when you hear it, it was not just for you. There is something that you must do with it. As I began to think about that and go through our day's meetings and counseling and all of the things that we do during a day, this message came out of it. So I'd like to move to the very first slide and share with you the concept of father for a minute. In English, you get this uh, this way. Merriam-Webster says, the one who originates or institutes, as in uh, so-and-so invented that, so they are the father of it. You also get relating to another as a father to a child. This is a bit of a problem when you read the word father in the Bible because while it can carry those meanings, it largely does not. A father is more along the lines of somebody that you pattern your entire life after. A father is more along the lines, actually, The father is an immovable standard and you are considered a child if you pattern your life after them. I'll show you more in the language about father as we go and that'll get clear. For a moment, let's focus on children. So when you, uh, wow, those fonts did not come through in, uh, on that computer. On the other, they did. When you look at the word bar or the word ben in Hebrew, these are both translated son. And when they're translated son, understand that it can be your your progenitory, it can be your son and your grandson and, and their son, or it can be that person which you act the most like. So if I act exactly like my rabbi, I would be called a son of that rabbi. This is similar to the English phrase, he's a chip off the old block. They use bin and bar in that way. For instance, every Jewish life uh, at the age 13 has a bar mitzvah. You become a son of the command. That doesn't mean that you literally descended from the commands. Of course, it means that you have a responsibility to the commands. You should resemble the commands. Um, also, the word Ben, you might have seen the Cecil B. DeMille movie, uh, Judah Ben-Hur. <laughs> and it simply also means son of. So context will help you determine that. That is very interesting when you consider a scripture like Romans 4.16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law or those who are in his family, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. It is possible to be Norwegian and be a son of Abraham. It is possible to be a Texan and be the son of Abraham. And it is, of course, first and foremost, possible to be a Jew and be a son of Abraham. The word can have genetic connotations, 
but it also certainly has behavioral connotations. Well, when you were thinking about that, what does it mean when we're reading John 1, 12, as to many who, as many as believed upon him, he gave them the rights to become sons of God. To the Hebrew mind reading this, somebody who did not come out of a Greek seminary, when you say sons of God, there would be, uh, sons in, in Hebrew would be benai, that's, that's plural. It would be ludicrous to think that you were the genetic offspring of God. As many as who believed him, he gave the right to become exactly like him, i.e. his sons. How sad is it then that in the faith of Abraham, we have people who are walking around and nothing of our life resembles God, but we claim to be Christians. There's no chance that somebody would see and go, oh, wow, you know, that guy must be his son because I can see they both uh, are in construction. They both have the same jawline. They both talk the same way. They both approach things the same way. Have you ever been to a family reunion and you could tell who was related to who? It's supposed to be like this in the kingdom of God. Our behavior is supposed to be our distinctive one of the key uh, elements of the ministry of Jesus Christ that you may not have picked up on in reading through 39 books of the Older Testament and then coming to the 27 books of the Newer Testament is really what is called the revelation of the Father. And when you think on the revelation of the Father, consider some facts as we get into our text. In the Older Testament, the term God, usually Elohim, but the term God in the English Bible is used 2,619 times. Somebody say that's a bunch. When speaking of Yahweh, that term God is the primary term that is used. In the Older Testament, the term father is used uh, in, in the sense of a child relating to a father fewer than 10 times. Do you find that strange? You know, as you go to gas stations or uh, uh, hang out outside a Home Depot or anywhere else you might be, it is an amazing thing the way in which you hear the word God used. Uh, our politicians will say things like, God bless America, whether they have any love for the Lord or not. Um, you hear in prison ministry every Sunday, God, if you'll just get me out of here. Uh, sometimes after a hurricane, you'll hear, why did God let this happen? Uh, sometimes you might hear, uh, GD, I just stepped in something. I mean, we hear God used frequently. When's the last time you ever heard somebody say, Jesus in those terms, or the Holy Spirit in those terms? There is a different level of relationship that is indicated by the use of the word God and the use of the word Father. And what I'm getting at here is any lost person relates to the deity as God. But do you relate to the deity as very personally your Father, indicating that you have a more personal relationship? In John 1.18, there's a scripture. And as we read that, as I quote it and you think about it, Understand the stark difference between the revelation of God 
2,600 times in the Bible, and you get to the book of Matthew, and 42 times in the book of Matthew alone, Jesus refers to God as his father. You couldn't help, if you were reading this as a literary work, come to that and be shocked all of the sudden. Uh, 250 times in the New Testament, God is referred to as father. How is it that we have fewer than 10 times in 39 books and in 27 books that comprise far, far, far fewer words, we have 250 times. Jesus brought us something. Could you put John, the first chapter in the 18th verse, on the screen? Oh, are you turning there in your Bibles? Yeah, say there when you were there. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the, what's that say? Has made him known. The ministry of Jesus Christ allows you to know God in a different way. It is normal for people all over the world to worship something, and they'll have different names for God. In fact, it's led to the idea that there are many names for God, but they all arrive at the same source. That's false. Do you know how we know that's false? Because the men that say God's name is Allah do things that Satan does. So when they say Allah is the same as God, he doesn't have the same characteristics as the one that we're calling Father. He, he doesn't require the same things of his people. He doesn't encourage the same things in his people. You know, you can meet two men that say they have the same name. Uh, when I was a young man, we uh, thought highly of a guy named Bo Jackson. Uh, at 240 pounds, he ran the 40-yard dash in the fastest time in recorded history. And um, because of that, you know, we... we now, uh, there was another Bo Jackson in my hometown. Uh, he was a plumber. And so uh, the Nike slogan was, do you know Bo? Uh, well, yeah, I knew Bo. It was just a different Bo Jackson. How do you know that? I knew it by the things that they did. I knew it by the way that they looked. I knew it by the way they related to the world around them. The plumber was not flying in airplanes between his professional baseball gig and his professional football gig. The plumber was going from house to house with an entirely different kind of work. How do you know when someone says, God, what they're talking about? Lately, we love to hear the, well, God is love. Really, is Allah the God of love? Uh, I'm pretty convinced that Allah is Satan and that the book called Koran is actually just the chronicles of some despotic leaders that did things like rape children and cut off heads. That's not the God that I know. That's not the one that I call Father. I know it's politically incorrect in these days to say this. The gospel's always been politically incorrect. I have absolutely no fear of Islam or Muslims. I love Muslims and want to see them converted. Maybe it should start by confronting them with the fact that they are following a pedophile that has passed himself off as a prophet. How do you know what God is like? The Bible makes the startling claim that Jesus Christ reveals him as his father and then goes a step further. He can be your Father, if you're willing to believe on him and become his sons. I want to show you something in the Hebrew language that it's unlikely you've come across. And 
You know, in school, most of the time, the first things that you do are teach children of the alphabet and, and primary colors. Am I wrong, uh, preschool teachers? I mean, we, we're going to start with the building blocks of the language. Um, interestingly enough, when you are saying even the Hebrew alphabet, uh, we start with the letter alf, and then we move to the letter bet. It give you some idea of the etymology of the word alphabet? Yeah? So when you have alf, bet, gimel, dalaf, hey, vav, zayin, chet, tet, yod, as you go through those, these are the first things that you would learn in Hebrew uh, life. You would have to learn the building blocks of your language. Well, it's important to know that the Hebrew language is different than most languages of the world. The Hebrew language, each letter has a concept associated with it. So what you see on the left up here uh, by the word alf is the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. On the left is the Paleo-Hebrew letter, meaning the letter as it first appeared in Hebrew writings. As you see it on the right, you see the more modern uh, script that is there. But the word alf or the letter alf would first and foremost to every Jewish child who is taught it mean first, strength, or leader. Now, if I say you got an A, am I saying that you did good or bad in English? Yeah. And because of the Bible in our lives, when we say uh, man from uh, alpha to omega, we're speaking uh, Greek letters there, you understand that we're saying from beginning to end. In other words, A in English has begun to mean primary, right? Or first, or, well, that concept, it comes to us from Hebrew. The second thing that this uh, letter alf uh, does is it conveys a sound. Just like when you put the word, uh, the letter A up, we, we're going to ask, is it a long A or a short A? Uh, is it A as in apple or, or A as in bass? Uh, how, how do you... Um, How do you say it? Well, this letter carries with it a concept and it carries with it a sound. And there is a third thing. I mean, these letters are tridimensional. I don't know of any other language like this. It also carries with it a number. Alf stands for a one. Bet stands for a two. Gimel stands for a three. And when you express Hebrew numbers, you only express them through letters. So in English, we have letters and numbers. In ancient Hebrew, you only had letters. Are you beginning to follow me so far? Well, get this. The very first thing that you ever learn from your parents is the very first letter, an alf. And the first thing that you learn about it is that that symbol represents a leader, usually the first leader or a strong leader. Moving to the second letter of the alphabet, bet. That symbol represents a house or a family. You see this in words like Bethlehem or Bet Shen or Beth El or Beth Avon or any of the Beths, Bethany, uh, any of those that you see in, in the Bible. It means house of. Now, secondly, it also is a sound and it's very similar to the B sound, which is why we translate it that way. The third thing is, it's a number. Now, am I putting you to sleep yet, or are you interested? One of the very first words, if you only knew two letters in the Hebrew language, the first word that you would ever learn to speak is an interesting one. 
is the next slide. If you put an alf and a bet together, just the symbols, before you could pronounce them, before you could do anything else with them, just the symbols would mean leader of the house. Are you following me? Then when you learn to pronounce them, when you learn to go ab, you would be saying in Hebrew the word father. Would there be any doubt who is the leader of the house then? No, there would not. From the earliest moments, knowing only two letters, you could say the word father, and both letters would carry with them the concept of the leader of the house. And it would be inescapable. This would be as so simple to the Hebrews that it'd be like singing your ABCs uh, to us. Fair enough? Let's move forward with that concept. Another very important letter, a hey. They thought that this symbol looked like hands lifted or a window open. In most Hebrew writings, it came to represent the spirit of God, okay, or just spirit. In Hebrew, the word for breeze, spirit, wind, all of those things, they're synonymous with each other. They don't differentiate between those. Well, if you wanted to say maybe the most important word in every language... You only needed these three letters to do it. You would have learned to say Father, Ab. You would learn from these symbols, the one that looks like the Texas Longhorns, the Alf, that that's leader. You would learn that the one that looks like a pyramid or a house uh, on the end, the, the bet, that's the house, leader of the house, Ab. And when you inserted the hay, God's spirit into it. Do you know what it looked like? Love. Now, what I'm trying to get across to you is that only knowing three letters in the Hebrew language, an alf, a bet, and a hey, you learn that the leader of the house is the father and that when the spirit is put into that situation, what it looks like is love. Now, what's wrong with saying a father... In English, is that we differentiate between, what, what do you mean your father? Are we talking your baby's daddy? Are we talking a donor? Are we, we talking a stepfather? We differentiate between father and daddy. We have a, a million ways to say everything except the man who is leading our house and the personification of love. But when a Hebrew says father, it can have no other meaning than the man who is leading our house and the very personification of love. The fact that numerically it, it adds up to three is a, is a whole nother message. We're not going to get into here today, but let's do it this way. The best or most foundational expression of love was the leader moved of God's spirit in your own home, what is it then that fathers were supposed to do? They were supposed to represent God to their families. You wonder why so many people have daddy issues? Well, they have God issues. You say, well, it's not fair. You didn't know my daddy. I don't need to know your daddy. The fact that he was not a perfect man, the fact that maybe he was not even a good man, or maybe he was the most beloved figure in your life, makes no difference. When God chose to reveal himself through Jesus Christ as a father, he was saying, I want to lead your house by my spirit, and that looks like love. And you know it simply by the use of the word father. 
Now, as I began to think about that, and I thought, you know, this, this might make a decent Father's Day message. Too bad it's not June. I said, but, you know, the thing is, we didn't all experience that. And, fact, we all came from the dirt. And um, I don't... I got thinking about family reunions, and I don't know why this guy with the mullet and the cigarette uh, got my attention. I don't know what kind of stock you come from, but I come from a diseased stock, a terrible stock. I come from an illustrious line of criminals and deserters and irreputable people. So if you come from something that is noble and you're very proud of that, um, I come from a fallen line of the human race that started with a failure named Adam. And uh, I've been failing pretty bad most of my life. And the truth is, is that Genesis 2, and we're not going to go there yet. In Genesis 2, we find a truthful statement that says, God took of the dust of the earth and he made a man. When you're thinking of God taking of the dust of the earth, it's interesting to note that the earth's crust and the human body have relatively the same composition. And when you're thinking about that, we spend our whole lives having come from the dirt and trying to not return to it. And Job got the revelation, yeah, from dirt man came and the dirt man's going back. I come from a dirty people. I have lived much of my life as a dirty person and in dirty oppression. And as far as I can tell, what men call good, oh, he's a good man? They've simply swept the dirt under the rug for the sake of presentation. Because I've not met any men that I think are truly good men. And the Bible makes the claim. Have you ever heard the phrase, God will not give you more than you can handle? That is so untrue. You know what you can't handle? Life. You can't. There's not a single thing that you're capable of handling. You are the biggest failure that God ever put on the planet because we disconnected from God. So, man, I, I heard that this was my best life and I'm a champion. You heard wrong. Okay, that's, that's five foot two full of lies is what that is. Okay? Now, while we're talking about this subject, well, why does everybody say, God won't give me more than I can handle? He won't give you more than He can handle in you. He won't give you more than He's capable of handling. But the very truth of the gospel is that on your own, everything that you do just results in more death. Have you ever tried to be a better person? I mean, anybody in here ever tried to quit saying bad things? Ever tried to quit getting frustrated in traffic? Try to quit hanging up on the telemarketer? Try to quit doing whatever it is that you do? You know, of all the things that can be tamed in this world, you are not one of them. We come from diseased stock. So, no, not me. My line was noble. Then you descended from somebody other than Adam, and you are an alien. Not the kind that walked across our porous border, the kind that came from an extraterrestrial source. The most difficult part is that the Scripture calls this obvious. Go to Galatians 5, and let's start 
Actually, I put the list on the screen. Let me say this. Galatians 5.19. This says 5.16. 5.16 speaks of the contrary natures that are at work in you. But 5.19, speaking of your flesh, that dirt that you're made from, says that the works of, of, of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. By the way, have you ever looked at the word pure? Pure means unmixed with any other matter. How many of you can say that you're completely unmixed with the world around you? I met an Amish man the other day, and uh, he makes great furniture. That's that's a special trade, and it's inexpensive furniture if you buy it directly from the Amish. So I was really happy, and I noticed that they've tried very hard not to mix with the world. In fact, no gasoline engines among the Amish. Apparently no razors either, um, uh, or colors, uh, I saw the strangest kind of bloomer underwear that uh, were hanging from the line right outside the office for the world to see that went from about here to about here. And um, I marveled at all the modern things that they do not do. And then I look out the other window and saw a 13-year-old Amish kid smoking a pack of Marlboro Reds on a forklift driven by propane because it's not a gas engine. And I noticed that the other Amish guy putting together furniture in the corner had a solar-powered charging station for his cordless drill. I don't care. I, I, by the way, I think the whole world ought to wear some makeup, by the way. Um, I find absolutely nothing against attractiveness and um, or colors or perfume or deodorant or any other thing that might make us less dirty, except it doesn't have the power to change our moral condition. And our moral condition is obvious, the Scripture says. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness. I actually thought that somebody was describing my actual family line when I looked at that. Look how contrary these things are to the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit start in the 22nd verse, if you're looking in your Bible. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Let me ask you, man in his natural habitat. <laughs> Loving, joyful, peaceful. You know, Woodstock was a big love in, Right? You never hear about the number of people that were raped at Woodstock. You never hear about the number of people that took so many mind-altering drugs they destroyed their body. You don't hear about those things. Uh, and that's exactly what the world's like. It is a false image appearing to be real. It is, it is a total sham and a lie. After you've already bought in and gone further than you ever thought you would go and find no way to escape, you then find out that it's nothing like it was advertised. Peaceful. Yes, the world is obviously peaceful in and of its natural state. Patient. Yeah. When you drive down 59 in the morning or, or Interstate 10 on the west side of Houston in, in the afternoon, you've never seen a better example of patience, which, of course, is yielding kindness everywhere. And in general, every time you walk into a convenience store, you think of how much goodness is being sold on the racks all around you, right? 
gentleness is how you would describe most of the people that you encounter most of the time. I mean, in a place like Manhattan, for sure, the most gentle people you've ever met in your life, right? I mean, self-control is the order of the day. It's, it's why we praise our artists. It's why we love our movie stars for the, for the self-controlled lives they live. Guys, it's dirty. It's dirty. And it's not just dirty. There's a dirty oppression that goes with it. In Exodus 2, we have a story about a loving father, a loving God. And he sees the dirtiness of the creation. And interestingly enough, he's concerned about the state of his people. They feel forsaken. They've been enslaved for some 400 years. And in the second chapter, and the, I'm sorry, third chapter, and the um, seventh verse, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. You say, Eric, you don't understand. This had nothing to do with them. This is external. They're, they're victims. You never been victimized by the things you couldn't quit doing? Have you ever seen a man that loves his family, but he can't quit drinking? The easy route is to say, no, no, he just doesn't love his family. What if he does love his family and he's a slave to sin? Have you ever seen a man addicted to cocaine? In the year 2000, I was preaching a New Year's message while somebody I love deeply was snorting cocaine in the church. Loved me enough to be there. Couldn't control his actions enough to not snort cocaine in the church. What's going on in your life? What are you a slave to? You say, I got no coke problems, man. <laughs> You know, it's funny. None of us, uh, we hate everybody else's sin and we love our own. Now, the kingdom of God's not a matter of food and drink. I'm, I'm certainly not speaking about things like chocolate and caffeine, but have you ever tried to quit? I mean, seriously, get with me here. Have you ever tried for a few days to not drink coffee? It brings out the best in you, doesn't it? No, no, we have no problems. We're masters of our own destinies, right? I mean, we're, we're doing just fine. We never say things to people that we regret. We, we never act in ways that we're later embarrassed of and promise we'll never do it again, only to do it again the next time we see them. We don't do that stuff, do we? The human race is so ridiculously enslaved. You know, I pull this quote out from time to time, and the reason that I do it is both because I admire Harriet Tubman and I want you to admire her. And secondly, because I don't think anybody's ever said it better in history at any time. I said, is it true, Ms. Tubman, that you freed hundreds of slaves? She said, yes, and I would have freed thousands if only they had known they were slaves. And there lies the condition of the church. God's people were slaves, but at least they knew they were slaves. It was easier to see because it was somebody else's actions. Friend, John 8 makes the claim that if you sin, you're a slave to sin. The wages of sin are death. It never changes. There is no way around that. You say, well, Jesus died for my sins, so those aren't the wages. No, the Christian who sins is still producing death all around them. You don't believe me? Love the Lord with all of your heart, but sin against somebody and see how it affects them. It's still death. Do you think the person that gets run over... Um, because we're driving too fast or driving too drunk, cares whether you were a Christian or not? 
Did the impact from the car hurt them any less? Our actions are somehow not miraculously different simply because you feel redeemed. This story is God's concern about the effects of their slavery. And I want to tell you, he's concerned about the effects of your slavery to sin. So I have come down to rescue, he said. Please put that on the screen. I have come down to rescue, he said. What kind of God do we serve? He's the leader of a house. He's the very definition of love. By his spirit, he comes down to rescue. He doesn't tell you to come up to him. That's like Buddhism. He doesn't tell you, hey man, you've made a mistake. Try not to do it again. That's Confucianism. He doesn't say if you can hurt yourself enough, then I'll be satisfied. The Hindus do that and some Catholics. He's the God that cares about your state enough to reach down into your life and intervene. So I have come down to rescue them out of the hands of the Egyptian and to bring them up. He doesn't just come down and fix your wound. He comes down to raise you up. Now, if he came down and he's raising you up, where is he raising you up to? Ephesians 2 teaches that we are raised to the right hand of God and we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. To be rescued is not simply to have sin washed away. To be rescued is to have the propensity to sin, the slavery to sin, the habitual nature of sin changed forever, broken, so that you have a new nature. Otherwise, all you're doing is writing Jesus' name in dirt. But it's nothing like Jesus. Dirty oppression. You know, this story goes on and, of course, these people are saved from their oppressors. That's the Bible story. Those who cried out to him, he had mercy on and he saved them. As I began to think about this, I began to think about some of the men that people esteem. Now, this is a generational thing, so you young people are going to be lost here for a minute. And I put a few of them from my childhood Many of them, of course, are way before my childhood. The last time you had a white heavyweight boxer that was any good, you almost have to go back a hundred years. It's the truth. That's, that's not racism. That is truth. Numbers simply don't lie. And, and an interesting thing, in most surveys that were done in the last 20 or 30 years or at least 20 or 30 years old the most popular sports figure in the entire world was an african-american name that is now known as muhammad ali because he's confused but his mama called him cassius clay and when you think about these guys when you look at these men they may not mean a single thing to you but each of them in their own generation was thought highly of for a bunch of reasons. Jack Dempsey, Joe Lewis, Joe Frazier, Big George, Cassius Clay, they all had devastating power in their hands. Usually, it was their right hand. Joe Lewis is the one who originated the quote, everybody has a plan until you punch him in the mouth. (laughs) Who can argue with wisdom like that? One of the most memorable periods in boxing history 
in something that shaped the generation that my parents were from was the time period between 1961 and 1963. Cassius Clay predicted not only that he would knock out his opponents, but he, he predicted the round. He said, in, in, they all fall in the round I call. And he was correct. In 1964, he fought a guy named Sonny Liston. 43 of 46 sports writers that were polled said he would lose. He called the round. He got the round wrong. First time he, his streak was broken. But he defeated him and won. One of the biggest upsets in sports history. I'm not here to sing the praises of professional boxers. I'm really not. The devastating power of Rocky Marciano's right hand. That guy, by the way, 49 and 0, never lost. 43 of them by knockout. He was the son of two immigrants. He was digging a ditch. Uh, for a living before he was a heavyweight boxer and he failed out of physical education. He was too sickly to pass physical education. He was a world champion in 1952. What difference does any of that make? It occurred to me. I think the reason that we're drawn to two men standing in a ring, and by the way, those of you that are watching MMA now, I get it. <laughs> Boxing has become boring. They don't kick, they don't wrestle, they don't do any. These jokers literally stood in front of each other and just hit each other as hard as they could until somebody couldn't stand up. But the simplicity of the idea that with a single blow, somebody's entire fortunes could change. With one serious right hand, everything could change was not lost on the generations that watched it. You know, when God looked at the oppression of his people, it's not a hard thing for God to deliver them. That's not a hard thing. It's hard for the people to trust him and obey. He required them to do things like march out onto a peninsula where they were completely trapped, totally vulnerable, for no other reason than to show, I trust you, Lord. And of course, after the fact, when you know how the story ends, say in Exodus 15, put Exodus 15 and verse 1 on the screen. When you know how the story ends, their song makes all kind of sense. If you didn't know, the day before, if they were singing it, you would think they were crazy. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. By the way, what father wouldn't fight for his children? Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. Don't you love the underdog story? In a moment, with the sweeping of God's hand, he changed their situation forever and ever and ever. And why? Only because he loved them. Were they any better than the Egyptians? Not at all. Did he pick them because they were of better quality or character? Their own writings say that that is not true. 
If you've ever read Deuteronomy 7, you find out that they were among the most pitiful of the nations on the earth. And so he had mercy on them. Turns out they were just made of dirt. Just like you and me. We have a loving and forgiving father. Psalm 85 verse 11 says, Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. No matter how dirty your life, no matter how dirty the oppression of your life, no matter how hopelessly trapped in sin, no matter how outnumbered, no matter how cornered you are, the Lord says, If you'll just trust me, faithfulness is a word for trust. If you will just trust me enough to do what I say, and it's usually something that is contrary to your nature, because how would I know if you trust me if you're doing only what you wanted to do in the first place? He might make you march out onto a peninsula where you have no hope of winning in the natural realm. He might call you to stand up and denounce yourself before the whole world as a filthy, rotten sinner. Only that God could save. He might put you in a situation where only acting against your self-interest would prove that you trust Him. Are you beginning to understand what trust is now? You know, obedience is not obedience if you wanted to do it all along. I say, hey, you know what? Emigel, eat this ice cream now. Oh, okay. Don't throw me in the briar patch. Now, Brussels sprouts, nobody eats those things willingly. Looks like a little animal left it there. We serve the kind of God that is looking for any sign that you trust Him. How can you show Him that you trust Him? What can you do that denies your interest, that denies yourself and follows Him? He's looking, and when He sees in you the slightest turning towards Him, righteousness looks down from heaven. That's what the Scripture teaches us. How do you become more than dirt? How can you escape dirty oppression? In what world does dirt become something more than dirt? I mean, have you ever looked at potting soil and said, oh, my brother, (laughs) the mother from which I sprang. Oh, praise God, potting soil. I feel so one with you. We spent our whole lives trying to clean it up to be anything other than dirty. It takes a really wicked and perverse generation to celebrate how dirty they actually are. And we've arrived at that generation. The things that our great-grandparents would have been so ashamed of they couldn't have uttered in the privacy of their bedroom. We now plaster across electronic media to be preserved for all times in all ways. It's sickening. It's like we've given up on the chance of a changed nature and we've just embraced the sinful nature to the fullest extent. There was a meeting not long ago that some of our college age and young adults went to at a church in the area, if you could call it that. I would not prefer to think of it that way. Where they were encouraged to exchange digits with each other. The Christian meat market, you know? 
I've given up on God, so let's just see if we can make this work in the flesh. Literally. That is pathetic beyond belief. How is it that we could become something more than dirt? Turn with me to Ezekiel 37. Say there when you were there. Do I at least have your attention? It takes so much to get people's attention these days. And yet the man that God is dealing with, it takes very little to get his attention. I don't know where you were when the Lord first began to deal with your heart. I know as a young boy, I began to speak to him. But in my early teens, I was positive that I was not right with him. I used to pray for forgiveness for the same sins every night. How do you pray for forgiveness for the same sins every night if you've received it even once? It's a clear sign. It's a clear sign that you know that you've not been forgiven. I wrapped around myself every lukewarm, trashy church doctrine that I could find, and there's an abundance of them. They're handed out at every steeple and stained glass dispensary in the world. They basically said, if I would simply acknowledge with my mouth that Jesus was Lord and believe in my heart that he was raised from the dead, that that was all that had to happen. Well, what if he's not actually your Lord? What if when you say Jesus is Lord, it is a lie for you? Oh, you believe he's Lord conceptually, but he's not your Lord practically in your life. Practically, you live exactly like an atheist, doing whatever you want to do with the bumper sticker that says Jesus is Lord or the Christian T-shirt. Do you think that that's what that scripture is addressing? Shame on people for saying such a thing about our king. It might even produce entire generations of people that sit in church, believe themselves saved, and are destined for hell, even though there is an extraordinarily loving God who wants to lead his house by his spirit in a display of love. Wouldn't it be like spitting in his face to think you got him on a technicality? Because I was baptized as an infant, I'm saved. No, 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 we're Protestants. Well, because I one time prayed a prayer and I kind of halfway sort a minute, even though there's no evidence of it anywhere in my life, I'm saved? Right. If you believe that sitting in here today, I hope I'm offending you. I, with all of my heart, I hope to be more offensive than I have been thus far. And there's a reason for it. Perhaps offense will cause you to examine whether or not you can find such a concept anywhere in the Bible. It is not there. There's a reason that Jesus never prayed a sinner's prayer with anyone. A reason that the Apostle Paul never prayed a sinner's prayer with anyone. There is a reason that Peter never prayed a sinner's prayer with anyone. It did not exist. God expected you to acknowledge your condition, to yearn for change and to demonstrate trust over the rest of your life, trust-grounded obedience that showed that he was delivering you. Not one time a three-second prayer that somebody else scripted for you. If you're in here today and you believe you were saved at the age of eight, and between eight and right now, you have not produced the things that were on the right side of the list to define your life, then you lie and do not practice the truth. If you would like to find that in print, read the first chapter of 1 John. If you say you have fellowship with the Father and you walk in darkness, you lie 
and do not practice the truth. If you're still tripped up on that, then go ahead and grab Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter my kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And ask yourself, am I doing God's will? And how do I know I'm doing God's will? And when I look back, what has been the result of God's will? Or am I just doing whatever I want to do and attaching God's name to it? You may have claimed to be a Christian your entire life. I could claim to be a lima bean. And that does not mean that that is what I am. In Ezekiel 37, we find the only hope for humanity. The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. There was a day in which I realized my life was full of bones. Even my closest friends, I often hurt whether I meant to or not. And I certainly hurt the ones I didn't consider friends. He led me back and forth among them and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. Why would he say they're very dry? They've been dead a long time. The situation in the natural is that the armies of Israel have been decimated and it looks like the nation could never live. But for a moment, I would like you to think about your life. What areas have been dead so long that they're actually dry? You've given up on the possibility of change. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, ah, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Boy, don't we like that cop out? God asks you a question. We're like, you know, Lord, what difference does it make? I mean, all things are with you. Which means, of course, you don't have to know anything or seek for anything or try for anything or be held accountable or responsible for anything. You alone, Lord, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. How did a human being first come to life? In Exodus 2, or Genesis 2, 7, how did the dirt first come to life? What makes that potting soil any different than you? God never breathed the breath of life into it. But I want to assure you that if the God, uh, the God of the universe, the one that we call Father, desires it, he could breathe into the potting soil and a human being would come out of it perfect. What would happen to you who already have the spark of life in you if he breathed on you again? What would become possible for you? Could your foul mouth be washed away? Could those lascivious desires you don't want anyone to know about and you wipe out of your history, could they be washed away? Are there chains in your life that have condemned you to slavery, sitting in a church claiming to be free, that if he breathed on you, they would be broken forever? Let me ask you, do the Proverbs say he who conceals a matter will be blessed? Or does it say a man who conceals a matter will not be blessed, but he who reveals it will be blessed by the Lord? Do you think that if we hide our chains, they'll just go away? Or do you think they get stronger in the darkness? It didn't happen in a single moment. But Ezekiel began to speak to these bones. 
In fact, 10 times in the next 14 verses, he says the word in Hebrew, Ruach, spirit, breath. 14 times in only 10 verses. And before long, there's a little rattling among the bones, the signs of change. And then there is a little bit of meat on the bones getting stronger. And then there's a little bit of tendon between the joints able to move in a new way. And before you know it, there is an entirely new man standing there. Perhaps you would like God to simply breathe into the potting soil and make a human being. But you know what? He's already started with you. Are you going to let him finish? Are you simply going to declare it impossible? Or worse yet, deny it and say it's already done while you are walking around a corpse. You know, there is a link between the birth of the human race and the birth of a church. And it's more beautiful than we even have time to explain. But in the bottom of this screen, where you see the word neshuma, this is translated in Genesis 2-7, the breath of life. The scripture says, and God breathed into Adam the neshuma kai, the breath of life, and he became a living being. It's a unique phrase. In Hebrew, let me, let me read you what the finest scholars in the world say about the phrase, nashima. A feminine noun meaning breath, wind, or spirit. Its meaning is parallel to nepez and ruach. Those are words that mean spirit. It refers to the breath of God as a destructive or violent wind. They go on to say it can be a stream of brimstone that kindles fire. The breath of humans is recognized as the source and center of life. It is all so understood when this word is spoken that such breath originates with God. Do you mean to tell me that the God of the universe spoke into Adam? He breathed into Adam a violent wind, a rushing wind, a wind that had tongues of fire in that wind and he became a living being. Because by the time you get to the book of Acts, Could we put Acts 2 and verse 2 on the screen? God is breathing upon his church again. They're alive, but not really alive. They know the truth, but they're not able to walk in the truth. They're in fact cowering in an upper room while they know the truth. So it says suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. You tell me that you have the Spirit of God in your life and I'm going to say, was it violent enough, traumatic enough, shaking enough to leave your life completely unchanged? Receive the Holy Spirit. Y'all think you got it? Was there a trembling, a shaking? Was something lit on fire in him? Is he fundamentally changed in that moment? Or is he still sitting there? You know how I know that your theology is wrong? I got all the Holy Spirit I I ever get the moment that that I prayed the, the, the prayer that somebody else scripted for me. Do you know how I know it's wrong? There was no change. When the Holy Ghost comes upon you, It shakes up your world. 
Because for the first time in your life, you're something more than dirt. In fact, it's an awful lot like the God of the universe with knockout power in his right hand. Reach down into a human being. This looks like a man's hand. Would you agree? It's made of a similar substance as a man's hand. Would you agree? You don't think that your hand's leathery live long enough. It'll become that way. Is there strength in this? But what happens when God reaches down and he puts his hand into your body for the first time in your life? Do you think that you could become a vessel of his presence? Do you think you could do extraordinary things that had never been done before? Do you think in that moment you could become more than dirt? Do you think maybe for the first time in your life you have the power to not sin right out of your life because there's something new, something violent, something that has overcome you with a fire of God come from his throne? Don't tell me you received all of the Holy Ghost there is to have if you've never knocked out sin because the Holy Ghost crushes sin he liberates the oppressed he breaks the chains he can drown an entire army in a sea if that army stands between you and the presence of God if you've received a touch from the Holy Ghost the good news is there's more in John 7, 37, Jesus said in a loud voice on the last and greatest day of the feast, if any man thirst, let him come and drink of me. Is he unwilling to give his spirit or are you just unwilling to drink? Look, pastor, you're going to have to hurry this thing up, man. My DVR has got something waiting for me. You can just live a dirty life of dirty oppression and be potting soil if you want to. I want to be a glove that the living God puts his hand in. I want to be the finger of God. I want to be his ambassador on the earth. Church, is so easy to just get caught in the rut of tradition. Doesn't matter whether you're a denominational church, a non-denominational church, an ecclesiastical or ecumenical church, or a Protestant church that doesn't do those things. It doesn't matter. It is in our nature to fight for the minimum and do the least and be swallowed by apathy. Oh, but if God would simply breathe on us. You know, the Hebrew text has strong hints to these things. Back to the alphabet for the children. I mean, just to keep it on an A, B, C, hey, level. It'll change things. The Hebrew letter hey, the one that symbolized the spirit, the one that the picture of was like an open window or a man with his hands raised. There was a man named Abram. Of course, Abram often resembled more dirt than he resembled God. He said, man, she's my sister. And he was married to a woman named Sarai. One possible translation for Sarai is drill sergeant. Just the kind of woman that would be a perfect mayor for Houston. Of course, what you almost can't see on that screen is God added something to their names. 
If you can read the Hebrew on the left, it's slightly highlighted in red. If you can read the English on the right, it's barely highlighted in red. He added that symbol of his spirit right in the middle of their names, and they became more than dirt. In the chapter 17 of Genesis, the man Abram becomes Abraham. The woman Sarai becomes Sarah. And in that moment, something was added to their lives. And so they go down in history. Him is the father of the faith and her is the birthing agent of the nation. They had previously failed. They had previously known the right ideals. But something was missing. What is missing from your lives? I'm pretty happy with what I got. Oh, then your expectations are way too low. These days, not many people carry Franklin planters because it apparently kills trees. And so all of you have got somewhere in your phone a task list. You might have a calendar. Maybe you're so old school you got post-it notes in your house. If the things that you plan to do can be done only in your strength, One wise pastor said, you are not dreaming big enough. You're not relying on God and you're not walking in faith. If the things that you plan to do, you are capable of doing without God, then you are walking without God. But if you believe he's called you to do something that you could never do without him and you have started walking in that direction despite the fact that your knees are shaking together, you might be begging him to breathe upon you. So let me ask you, how is it that we can go to church week after week without a breath of God? Because we're not daring to live like Him. But if you're daring to live like Him, then you cannot live without His respiration or respiriting of you. Am I making a dent anywhere in your lives? You know, I will have wasted my entire life if these things don't amount to anything. My high ambitions for my life were those funny coaches' shorts and social studies teaching. No, it's hard to picture. I'm so suave now. But there was a time I wanted the minimum, the easiest. And then God breathed into me. And I couldn't help but dare giant exploits for him. The bigger the better because then people would know that it came from God and could not have come from me. I was done with low living. I drew the line in the sand. I joined that fellowship of the unashamed. Where do you sit today? Ordinary or extraordinary? That's a great question, isn't it? Are you an ordinary human being that could be mistaken for any ordinary human being? Is there anything about your life that resembles the supernatural? Well, I, I, I saw a miracle one time, Pastor, in a galaxy far, far away. Well, actually, it was somebody else's miracle. I, I saw it on YouTube. <laughs> Tell me, when did you lay your faith on the line before the whole world, before your family, before everybody else, and you said, if God doesn't deliver me, I die right here. When did you dare something for the Lord that showed such trust in Him? If He didn't breathe on you, all that's left is a pile of bones. Let me ask you, why do so many who come to this church end up selling a house somewhere else? Why do they end up leaving jobs somewhere else? Why do they end up venturing into a place they've never been before? Because it might be the only way left for us to show that we trust God. Uh, Pastor, that's kind of (laughs) cultish. It's sad when the cults show more dedication than the church does. 
you rest assured, I won't ask you to drink any Kool-Aid. I'm one of those few pastors that actually believes Jesus made wine. There's no reason for Kool-Aid. When thinking of a way to describe what we're supposed to be, the church is trying to put on a collar to become holy. They're trying to put on a hat to become holy. And some churches, the longer and more colorful the jacket, the holier the man is on the stage. It's a little bit like Peter Parker trying to put on a suit to become Spider-Man. It's a little bit like Bruce Wayne putting on a utility belt and funny ears to become Batman. What the church is like, the real church of God. The real church of God is a lot like this glove. It looks like an ordinary glove until you bump into it. And then you find out it's filled with the presence of the master. We're a little bit more like Superman had to put on clothes to be anybody other than Superman. He tried to hide among regular people. When he put on his glasses, he became Clark Kent. Bullets still bounced off of him. How could you talk to me about trivial things? Don't pretend you don't know what I'm talking about. Are you hiding, living an ordinary life? The whole creation's waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. What will it take? What would God have to do to get you to dare something for him? To get you interested enough in advancing his kingdom that you actually let him slip his hand into your life and risk something. What would it take? Do we have to wait until there's an illness? Do we have to wait till he lit our barley fields on fire to get us to come running to his presence? Or is there a chance that some of you love the Lord enough to say right now, here and now, Lord, if you would just breathe on me, I will do it for you. Is it the hand of men or is it the hand of God? You know, this is a confusing question in the Bible. We say, oh, no, 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 no. It's the hand of God. Really, who led the children of Israel out of Egypt? Was it God's hand or was it man's hand? Or was it God inside of a man's hand? The glove is the right picture. When God wanted to deliver his people from Egypt, he reached down inside of Moses and he used Moses as his instrument to do it. In Acts 2, 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Was it the men speaking or was it God speaking? Or was it a man filled with God speaking? Are you hearing me? In Acts 4, 8 through 10, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? And didn't he get filled in the second chapter? Is there more than one filling? Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called into account today for an act of kindness shown to a crippled, And we are asked how he is healed. Was it Peter's hand that healed the cripple? Was it John's hand that healed the invalid? Or was it God's hand? Or was it God inside 
of a man's hand. How important is it that Nashimakai, that the vital breath of God enters your life? How important is it that we be filled with the Spirit? And why is there so much controversy and fighting over it? Because the devil does not want you to have it. It's that simple. Acts 4.31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the... I thought you got all you would ever get the moment you prayed that prayer someone else scripted for you as a child and then had no evidence that there was any saving grace anywhere in your life ever since. When's the last time the ground shook when you prayed? Did they shake the ground? Did God shake the ground? Pastor, it was God, it was God. Then why did they have to pray for it to shake? Was it God inside of a man shaking the ground? Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Are you catching a repeating theme here? Then Acts 13, 52, and the disciples were all filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. How many times would we have to say it? Let me ask you, have you been filled with God's Spirit? Did you get all you're supposed to have? Did you get an eyedropper? Did you get an unending spring overflowing to life all around you? Our Father defines love as the leader of a house with the Spirit of God. That's what love looks like. Oh, where to leave you? You know, we could sell tickets to a raffle. <coughs> we could play bingo. That worked 30 years ago. We could pipe in some famous personality or man who wanted to be famous and put their glowing image on the screen and the world would go crazy. They'd call themselves the church and they'd be the world. We'd have idolatry in the house of God. Nobody would even notice. We could ask for better seats, better floors. We could make the whole point of the service, how much money you'll put in a box. When men were filled with the Holy Spirit, they could say things like silver and gold I don't have. Take that prosperity gospel. Silver and gold I don't have. But what I have, I freely give you. Stand up and walk. What do you want? If you want a famous church, this is not the one to go to. You want a pretty pastor? We have some hope with Matthew. Dark am I and yet lovely. that most of us are just dirt that God breathed on. He's turning us from something very ordinary and base into something extraordinary and heavenly. And we recognize that we still have got a lot of dirt on us, and yet we feel a cleansing flow inside of us, compelling our every action. And we're not satisfied with that. We're asking for more every moment. We're literally laying our lives down, one decision at a time, one hour at a time every day. 
and we're inviting you to go with us, but I'm telling you, you will not survive the journey. You will certainly die along the way. Just to encounter the journey, you're going to have to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Ah, pastor, I am a Pentecostal. I am filled with the Holy Ghost. Why? Because you speak in tongues? My children were speaking in tongues before they were four years old. Can I tell you how full of mischief and foolishness they were? Speaking in tongues is not all there is to being filled with the Holy Ghost. It's just one tiny way to start. You know what a sign that a man is full of the Holy Ghost is? He is boldly advancing the kingdom through the witness of the gospel in every direction, no matter what it cost him, even if it's his life. Do you pass that test? If you do not, when we stand to our feet, you can ask the king of the universe to fill you with his presence. If you've got all you want, then you can go home and watch whatever sitcom you've got DVR'd before you get up and start your very ordinary life all over again tomorrow. I want something more than that. I believe that the creator of the universe made me for something more than simply seeking my own entertainment and pleasure. Why did he make you? Do you know? Could you stand to your feet?